welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. I want us to listen to this story with uh, trying to make some connections with the Christian life. So at some point, as we just reflect and chew over this story, I want you to try and just to keep somewhere in your mind's work and think, what on earth does this story have to do with the Christian life? And of course, one of the most immediate connections of the entire sort of tumultuous journey of the story of Joseph is particularly for those seasons when life just feels a little bit out of control or it's one of those moments where you just feel like when are things going to sort themselves out it's just one thing after the next and it feels like the the Joseph story lends itself to to lean in when we are in moments like that it's a big story that I would invite you to chew over Think about it, go back and read it. Read, think about what jumps out at you. Think about what doesn't jump out at you and and why that might be the case. There are many details and layers to the story. But for the purpose of our time just now, I, I want us just to follow three threads through the story that I think point to ways of being authentically Christian in our world and our lives today. So firstly, just notice how Joseph grows in wisdom throughout his time in exile, his little exile as he is carried off to um, the place of Egypt. It's interesting that the commentators will point out in this, um, this section of the book of Genesis, it's it reads in style quite different to the first part of the book of Genesis, particularly from Genesis 1 to 12. And they, they struggle, they really struggle, the scholars, to date this um, or when this period comes. The literature reads a bit more like it's akin to the book of Daniel or the book of Esther and at times to some of the wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs because it seems to be like it's written mindful of a time when they would be in exile. And so there are, there are quite a lot of similarities when you think back to the stories of these people that I just named. But it's this, this growth in wisdom, this, this characterization of, the, of Joseph, particularly as his 17-year-old self. I'm not sure if you've heard the phrase about the arrogance of youth, but it seems to apply in this situation. Joseph initially is characterized as, as quite brash and immature. Now, it does not warrant the treatment he gets, just for your information. But he, Joseph is this brother who comes out, I had a dream and you're all going to serve me. And of course his brothers are like, I really, we'll see how that works out for you. And then he, he has another dream and he's just like, you dad and mom and everybody is going to bow down before me. And you're like, you just might want to wind it in a little bit, Joseph. And so we have this sense of the 17-year-old Joseph, just a little bit brash and a little bit immature. But then 
he seems to start to excel and grow in wisdom as he's in his time in Egypt. The Lord gave him success in everything he did. This is where it rings a wee bit true, like the character of Daniel, to the point where Potiphar, this official who is a powerful person in the Egyptian world, he puts him in charge of his entire household, all that he had owned. He sees something in this uh, young Joseph, and we are told that he was well-built and handsome just to get the full picture of what this guy was like. And suddenly, in this foreign land, he had absolutely everything at his feet. It's like he's been dropped off at Glasgow Cali, and it's just like, off you go. The whole world is your oyster, young Joseph. And Potiphar's wife had noticed the rising star that was Joseph and makes her approach. And another door opens up for Joseph. But no longer is he characterized here as the brash and immature one, far from it. And in a position where it sounds like he literally could have had whatever he wanted with his position of authority over the whole household and everything that was under his control and leadership, we find Joseph deploying wisdom. And one way of talking about wisdom in the scriptures, and this is the proverbial sense, the Proverbs, it, it, wisdom just says, look, look a little bit further down the road and see where that takes you. And do you want to go there? And this is the father's voice in the book of Proverbs. And so there's a sense here where we see Joseph is deploying wisdom and immediately removes himself from the situation of Potiphar's wife. You might say he wins a key battle. And Joseph won a battle in what Justin would call a primal area. Now, we were in just a few different people, characters from the early church period last week. Uh, Justin was, is another one from about 160 AD. He was a teacher in the church. He would get involved in catechesis and teaching uh, would-be or new Christians the, the basics and foundations of the faith. And he, he writes in 160 AD about... Uh, primal areas. Now, primal areas for, for Justin are areas that are particularly seductive and potent, or areas that are immensely hard to unlearn. And for Justin, there'd be areas of ex- expressions of demonic power and manipulation. And he had four that um, he would have as part of his um, theology and framework for teaching. So his four areas were, one was sexual ethics, and was go after how it was marred by fornication. Two was the occult. Three was uh, wealth and possessions. And four was violence and xenophobia. And this Joseph here is depicted, if it was in, if it was in Justin's world, which it wasn't, was what made a, a victory, if you like, in this primal area of sexual ethics in a culture where the alternatives were literally being thrown at him. A practical exercise, if you would like that, would be the question of what would primal areas be today if you had to name four? And how, how do you think our lives intersect with those? For me, it seems almost self-evident to say that the whole realm of sexual ethics would still have would still and should still make the cut uh, today and 
I don't know if maybe add or modify the occult to include social media, and I don't hear me wrong in this. I don't believe all social media is demonic and anything like that. But in the sense of something that presents innocently and neutral, there is such a power beneath it, such a power of destruction that awaits, particularly when you marry those two of realm of sexual ethics and the world of online and social media. There's, there's so many things that would meet this character of primal areas that are seductive, potent, immensely hard to unlearn expressions of demonic power. And... Um, goodness, we have talked about those a lot recently as a family, just about that world for our children, about what they are growing up in. But Joseph rises up, and no longer is he the fool, but he rises up and says no because of his understanding of who God is. Not that it gets him anywhere useful. <laughs> he, he says no to Potiphar's wife, and she lies and takes a cloak and says, look what this Hebrew um, person has done. And then Joseph gets put in prison, if you know the story, and unfairly, of course. But it's the first thing we say, Joseph actually is starting to grow in wisdom, even his, his obedience that gets him absolutely nowhere. But we start to see him, him growing in Egypt. Another scene that, just, that I've already alluded to, where we see him as the wise uh, one in the story is the story of the cupbearer and the baker. Now, they have two different dreams. I'll not go into the details. You can read it. And Joseph then says, that I can't interpret dreams, but I know God can. Wisdom, relying upon God. And um, he ex- interprets the dreams for them. And uh, does it get him anywhere? Well, initially, no, because he serves them well. And the, well, the baker dies. And the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot about him. Uh, so he's left there, and as the text says then in chapter 41, until two full years had passed, Pharaoh then has a dream that none of his uh, magicians or counsel can help him with. And the cupbearer goes like, there was, forgive me for my shortcomings, but I remembered that this um, Hebrew when I was in prison, and he points uh, Pharaoh to Joseph, and then, as it transpires, Joseph is able to, again, says, I can't interpret dreams, but I know God can. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the lean and the cows that come out of the water. And basically, Joseph's wisdom shines through again. Um, Pharaoh describes the dream, and Joseph's able to interpret and predict seven bumper years of crops. And so, they know the plan because seven years of bumper crops are going to be followed by seven years of famine. All thanks to uh, Joseph's interaction and placement in this story. And the officials are pleased with what they find and they're able to position Egypt strategically through a time of great famine and, and set them well for uh, basically being in a place of strength and to rescue other people. And Pharaoh is so impressed with this young man uh, and says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the spirit, one in whom is the spirit of God? And then he says to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So maybe it does pay to be wise sometimes. Uh, It's certainly not straightforward, but 
Joseph demonstrates, it, it is possible to grow in wisdom even when we are set against uh, a dominant culture, uh, a culture that is, uh, call it exile, call it away from the values of what's home, of what we would know. Joseph is depicted as one who can grow in that place. So that's the first thread just to look at in the, the tumultuous journey of Joseph. Joseph grows in wisdom even against a dominant culture. The second thread we could trace is that reconciliation is a central part to the story of salvation. Conflict and the reality of strife are absolutely everywhere in this um, long and windy story. The brother's jealousy, which leads to murderous intent and the sort of murky compromise of just selling him off into slavery. Judah's mistreatment of Tamar in chapter 38. He neglects the protection of his daughter-in-law as a widow and he promises a son and then he leaves her completely abandoned. Interestingly as well with Judah's just as a slight aside, we have reversals again in the order of the firstborn with Judah's children that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But aside from anything else, we realize that the chosen people don't exactly seem to be the best sort of candidates for stewarding the promise of God, this promise of blessed to be a blessing. Time and again, there is this complex family full of strife and division and the reader is left wondering, how on earth is, are these people going to be the vehicle of God's plan of salvation? And all of this strife, and yet the story of Joseph has some really memorable moments. Jacob instructing his sons to go to Egypt for help. The whole story hinges on this, how on earth did this happen? This plan where suddenly Egypt was going to be the place of salvation they were going to need to go. And then not recognizing their now powerful brother. And then we have this moment where Joseph places the silver cup making the younger Benjamin have to stay. The weeping of the brothers or the weeping of Joseph I should say when, when he, the moment he just, he can't hold it back any longer and he just has to reach out to his brothers and they have this moment of reconnection. And Joseph, Benjamin are, are, are weeping together. The moment of reconnection with his father Jacob, eventually when father and son are reunited. And of course, the natural, probably dynamic, the, the, of the fear that sets back in after Jacob's death. The, the brothers start to hatch a plan just in case suddenly right now dad's dead and they're going, like Joseph's suddenly going to remember, I know exactly what you've done and I was letting you off the hook until, and, and all hell is going to break. And they're worried about that. Maybe Joseph will strike now with vengeance. But he doesn't. Joseph instead reassures them at the end of chapter 50, speaks kindly to them and says, I will provide for you and your children. Reconciliation. And this was chapter 49, chapter 49, the birth or rebirth of a nation, a family who would carry the hope of the world. And we find reconciliation is 
central to the story of salvation. Just briefly to linger on that point for a moment, we are going to come around the Lord's table this afternoon. And it can be so easy to do that and just be thinking, come in, right? Me and God, we come to the table, we get right, we have do business. But there's, there's just such a thing, it's so easy to forget that as we come before God, part of what it means to be right with God has this natural connection with the, not just the vertical me and God, but also the we, the us, the horizontal, the relationships in the, in the room and in the people have an intimate connection. If we say we're close, we're right with God, it bears itself out in our connection with each other. God's intimate garden, if you recall the start in Eden, was an intimately connected, holistic world of harmony. And if the New Testament completes this particular story, then Little wonder the Apostle Paul would say to the Colossian believers that through Jesus, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It is all things that were reconciled by making shalom, peace, through his blood and shed on the cross. And so there is a practical point here where there is a relational tension or discord or where you have a potential to improve it or remove your part from that tension. We, we do it. We, we don't ignore it. We don't spiritualize it or over-spiritualize it to our faith to the point where we undercut it. And, and maybe even taking a cue like Joseph, we speak kindly even when we have been wronged. There's something about God's plan of saving the world, which is a grand statement, that through the scriptures always involves the integrity of relationships of the sinful people that God works through. There's, there's, there's something about the way, if this, that holding this, this, this treasure in jars of clay, this, this promise is this thing that God wants to do through us, in and through us, there's something so important about the need to be reconciled to God and to each other in order to represent his kingdom and his love. And so the story of Joseph, it's rich. There's Joseph growing in wisdom against the dominant culture. There's this theme of strife and reality and family and mess and of reconciliation, of hope, of relationships being put right. And then the final thread takes us back to what, uh, where we started, said at the beginning, those times in life when it just feels like it's spinning out of control, one thing after the next, and you're like, is it ever going to come back? The good times, is it ever going to sort itself out? And the story of Joseph ultimately invites us with a huge amount of awe and wonder to consider how or that God's hand of control is still firmly on the action. This is what Joseph, I think, tells us. There's, there's this doctrine of providence. And I'm using the word providence here to describe God's presence and involvement in the story. And it's changed a lot from the first half of Genesis. You've probably felt this. So we have the intimacy of the garden where God's 
right there and it's all lovely and connected and it's good, it's very good and things are great for a very short time. Uh, God walking in the garden, a picture of uh, immediate presence and intimacy. And as you think about Genesis now, the, the flow of it, again, we have it with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They pray that God instructs them. There's an interaction. There's a, still a sense of immediacy. Um, we have a sense of them responding to the instruction of God. We even have Jacob uh, wrestling with God and there's a sense of of the presence being there but as you go through the book and particularly in that whole section that I read and the the bit the verses I didn't read around it there is this sense of God's presence is more in the background now and you might say providence is the idea of God's ongoing action his guidance and control of his world that is now at this point because of sin that has entered the world Genesis 3 is now his immediate presence there's there's a barrier to that but there's a sense of improvement his guidance and control his hand is still on the action his hand is still on the events in this world now deism is the whole idea that it's like people describe it like uh God designed and wound up this clock and then just kind of stood back and is now just letting things unfold and it's like, let's see how this goes. And, and that's just not the picture we have. The Bible resists that idea of God and ultimately depicts God as an ultimate being, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet as one whose hand is firmly in control of the events. The repetition of the narrator doesn't go into great detail, but just has this refrain that the Lord was with him. Just enough to remind you that there is one who is in control. And of course, most poignantly near the end of the whole story in chapter 50, Joseph makes the most complex and mind-boggling statement. He alluded to earlier in the story, but he says, you intended to harm throw me into the pit and sell me into slavery, thanks very much. But God intended it for good to accomplish what has now been done, the saving of many lives. And human agency, our involvement, our responsibility is clear and protected. They are making real decisions, both bad ones and good ones, and they are changing the future and and have real agency in the story. But God's agency and responsibility and action is preserved too. It's clear. He is not controlling them like robots, nor is he aloof just guessing and can have foreknowledge of their silly decisions or what they're going to do. There is an interplay between the two almost beyond our explanatory powers. And it's good to recognize that. But the story of Joseph must not be reduced to things will eventually just work themselves out. Or God will eventually just give you what you want. Things didn't go that well for Joseph at particular times. You know, as I said, even when he did the right thing, he was put in prison for resisting temptation. He was left in prison, forgotten, even though he helped people. He was left in the pit. His childhood was, brought, was devastated by his brother selling him into slavery. And yet there's this ultimate sense in the text that, that 
that in a sense, a very specific story here, God revealed his purpose, that there was a purpose in it. And so we can say, fine, if, if we mean in an ultimate sense of the new heavens and the new earth at the return of Christ, yes, things will work out ultimately and fully. And fine, yes, sometimes with wisdom or maybe we discern, God has used difficult things to bring good things to be. But, but not always. But not always. And, and rightly, scholars will connect this whole passage with Romans 8.28, which tells us that God is working in all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. But it does not mean that he intended the bad things just to draw out a good point. And Romans 8 just lists famine, death, hardship, persecution, all these inevitable things, and he points to Jesus as the one who overcomes. But it does not stand that at every point that all of these things have happened just so that he needed a little bit of a life lesson. What is clear is that God's providence, which is shorthand for saying God is ahead of, in control of, and his hand is working through the circumstances of her life and is there as the helper in this story. Joseph was not forgotten by God and neither are you and I. And this is where the story just lands. We're singing about it, about singing in the mystery. There's so many things that collide in our life that just land on this point of God saying, I'm still in control. I've not forgotten you. And, and it's left there. And as we said, if you remember, I think we said this right at the start. It seems like a long time ago, but Genesis begins in the intimate garden, but it ends with Joseph buried in Egypt, which is interesting because it indicates enemies, practices of peace. Christians have been given enemies, practices of peace. Christians have been given the Holy Spirit to put off the old life, to enter into the difficult, and as we said, this unrelenting, and, and things that are hard to throw off into communities who will call each other out of the murk and the mire and, and into the new. And as messy as that process can be, Jesus is the one who proclaims to give the spirit who can bring the change. Some of us need to remember to lift ourselves, lift our, our gaze, instead of just settling for, well, this is just the way things are. This is just not the kingdom. This is not what Jesus invites us in as our liberator. And he comes as our liberator to release us from the dominant culture, displaying a victory over the powers that hold and bind, whatever the primal areas are. We have a victory at the cross in Jesus' name. We find the one Jesus, that Jesus reconciles on the most radical of scales. It's not just a small family here, it's, it's a universal family, transcending gender, ethnicity, social status, and he commissions a diverse people to, to unify and to um, demonstrate his love through their unity, giving the church a peaceful ministry of reconciliation, bridge builders, and hospitable, loving communities that shine in an age of tribalism and ignorance. And Jesus, of course, as well, is God's presence and ultimate assurance of help. 
And even when it leads us to places we would rather not go. Even in the valley, let me shepherd you. Even when you don't feel my presence, he says, I will never leave you, forsake you. He came in the flesh. He died on the cross. He came to identify, to say, to make it known he will never leave us nor forsake us. For some reason, all of this culminated for me the costly, in the costly and risky way of Jesus about thinking back to a board game that we've played a couple of times with the kids. Um, the game of life. I don't know if you play the game of life. We've played the game of life in the Crothers household. A quick Google search tells you the game was invented in 1860. Milton Bradley, the checkered game of life it was then. But it's this board game where you play and you have different choices uh, about where you're going to go in life. It's always interesting which your children like sod having kids and a family. Sod university, I'm just going to get a job and make money. I was like, okay, noted. But it's this, the board game's this idea of you, you transcend I think you must win by who has the most stuff probably I can't remember but it's like it just describes this weird journey this difficult journey of life and you have all these decisions that we are going to make and for some this whole story of Joseph as it culminates in the person of Jesus it just reminds me of what we are invited into in this game of life that we are living for real times and as we think about uh, following Jesus, there's something about giving up living for Jesus only for good outcomes, only for things to go the way we think they should go, the way we expect them to go. The danger of this way of thinking is the minute it doesn't work out like that, is the minute we'll just press the eject button and go like, that's not what I signed up for. And there is, is, is a thing, it's a massive thing a therapeutic culture of I follow Jesus when it makes me feel better. It's a God is my butler, he's there when I need him, but, but when he, I don't need him when the things are going well. And, and it's, it just leads to, to death. It leads to just giving up when things get difficult. We've, we're invited to embrace the way of the cross and ultimately resurrection. And so there's a... a I feel like this text invites a, de- a, a dedication, a rededication to give it a firm no only to live for Jesus if things go well. I mean, that's going to get us nowhere. And a firm yes to a response of trust that says he is working consistently for our good and we are willing to follow even where we would rather not go ourselves because some days we will be taken there. And he'll invite us to go. And ultimately, I think, it's a story that says it is worth it because he is worth it. Follow him in this game of life, in this tumultuous journey. Follow him because he is good. And his hand has not been removed and he is swift to help. And he loves with a pure and abundant love. Trusting God's good purpose for life. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, would you comfort us with your assurance that you have not 
forgotten, that you see, that you hold, that you can lift, that you can make good, that you, that you are a power, that greater is he that is in and among us than this sometimes quite scary world that is unfolding before us. In a world that all the more we don't quite know where the solid ground is, we pray, Spirit, just magnify the voice of Jesus as solid ground to stand, the gracious one, the loving one. And Heavenly Father, for those of us who, all of us maybe, just need that sense of rededicating our, our lives to you, dependent on your worth and your faithfulness and your faithfulness to stay true to your promises, um, lift our eyes to Jesus, we pray, as we continue to worship you in spirit and truth. Amen. Let's worship together.